Good evening. I hate to break up the conversation. Sounds like you guys are having a lot of fun already. I love it. Um, Let me introduce myself. I am Liz Johnson, and I have the pleasure of serving here on staff at Watermark Plano. And one of my primary responsibilities is women's equipping. And so, so excited to have you all here. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive right in. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here tonight and to dive into your word, um, and just to have a great, sweet time of fellowship with other women. Lord, I pray tonight that as we study the book of Esther, that you would just reveal yourself to us, and that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that we would be able to see how much you care about our lives, that you care about the details, and that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, that you have preserved your word so that we can study it and we can know you through it. Lord, I pray that you would be with us tonight and that our ears and our hearts would be open to your truth, that you would get me out of the way and that your words would come through me. And I say all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, I am so excited to get to talk with you all about the book of Esther and just to go through this book that is rich with evidence of God's sovereignty in our lives. His hand is always at work, even when we don't acknowledge him. And that is the great truth of the book of Esther. As I was thinking through what I knew about this book, I, and before I got into studying it, I thought about my first real exposure I grew up in a Christian home and in Christian schools, so the Bible was very familiar to me growing up. However, my exposure to the book of Esther came from a very different book. How many of you have ever heard of great illustrated classics? There's like two of us. All right. Well, I tried to find a copy on Amazon to show you, but I couldn't. So what they were is they took classical novels And they broke them down into smaller versions with pictures so that children could read them. And I had a ton of these books growing up. Esther was by far my favorite, so I read it over and over and over again. Here is the publisher's description from Eye in the Ear Publishing Company. Here's the dramatic story of Esther, the young Jewish bride of the king of ancient Persia, now called Iran. Esther had heard that the king's wicked minister, Haman, was plotting to kill her people. She exposed Haman to the king, and Haman was hanged in the city square. Download and start listening now. (laughs) Sounds like a really great story for children, right? Well, Hollywood has also loved to glamorize Esther, as you can see. I've seen so many movies about Esther that portray her as a beautiful, witty, heroic, and overall charming Jewish woman who followed God faithfully, but in secret. That she wooed the king with her intellect and her soothing voice as she read to him from the Chronicles of the Kingdom, all the while maintaining her purity physically, ultimately leading to marrying this amazingly handsome, kind, loving king and living a life of obedience to God and his laws for his people. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but I think that as we study the scriptures together over the next six weeks, you will discover, as I have, that some of our assumptions about Esther are not entirely accurate. What is true about this story 
is that God uses flawed individuals to bring about his design and his purpose for his people. So let's dive in. Tonight, we are going to go through an overview of the book of Esther to give you all a frame of reference for the characters, the time, the location, and the themes that we're going to talk about throughout our study. Think about your freshman English class and the book outlines that you used to write. That's what we're going to do tonight. So there's a few key characters to talk about as we go through our study. The first is God. He is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. But his hand of sovereignty is remarkably clear throughout the story. Our second character is King Ahasuerus. You may know him as Xerxes. That was his Greek name. Most people use that name because it's a little bit easier to say than Ahasuerus. Um, So Xerxes and Ahasuerus are one and the same. He ruled the Persian Empire from 486 to 464 B.C. So for those of you that may not fully understand that, B.C. can be abbreviated to before Christ. And it's basically a countdown to the day that Jesus was born. So as we're going through the Old Testament and the B.C. time period, think of it as a countdown to Jesus. Our story opens with the king's drive to conquer the Greeks to avenge the death of his father Darius. He was known to be driven by passionate extremes when it came to his decisions. Here's just a couple examples for you. One time he ordered a bridge to be built across a strait, which is a small body of water called Hell's Pond. It's nearly a mile wide at its narrowest point. So remember, this is 2,500 years ago. This king ordered a bridge to be built over essentially a river. Right after the bridge was completed, a storm blew through and completely wiped out the bridge. He was so angry that he ordered a couple of interesting things to happen. The first, he ordered 300 whips on the ocean. So, to the ocean, 300 times. Um, The second thing that he ordered was that they would throw irons or fetters into the ocean. So, picture handcuffs that go on your ankles, threw that into the sea, so that he could show that he had power over the sea. And his final order was to have all of the builders of the bridge beheaded. Example number one. Number two, on another occasion, he was offered around five and a half million dollars by a man named Pythias to go to war against the Greeks. He was so impressed by this man's loyalty that he instead returned the money and then gave him a present or a gift. Then when Pythias returned to him, he asked for one small favor in return that the king would spare his eldest son from death by going to war so that he could live and take care of him in his old age. The king once again was completely furious at this request, so instead he ordered that his eldest son be cut in two, and then he marched his army between the two pieces. In another example, after being shamefully defeated by an, in an attack on Greece, he threw a party that was so lavish that he offered an award to anybody that could come up with a new form of indulgence for him. He was known in the ancient world for his wealth, his incredibly large kingdom, his good looks, he was a handsome guy, and his irrational temper. As we're going to learn later in our story, it is no wonder that this man ordered on one hand for the Jewish people to be completely annihilated and then flipped his decision to then say instead 
that the Jews could annihilate their attackers, his own subjects. This is not a man to mess with. Our next character is Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin who adopted her after her parents died. He plays a true father role in Esther's life, and she faithfully is obedient to the orders that he gives her. He is probably the person who wrote the book of Esther, although the author is unnamed in our story, so we don't actually know who wrote the book. Many biblical scholars believe it was Mordecai or someone like him who had access to the edicts of the kingdom and the laws of the land, but also had a very keen interest in Jewish culture and affairs. He was a member of the government in a role that would be similar to that of a magistrate or a judge. There's also been speculation that Esther may have been the author of the story. This is highly unlikely, because in those days women didn't really write. So even if they were educated or wealthy or nobility, they didn't write. So it's highly unlikely that Esther is our author. Which brings us to the heroine of our story, Esther. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. She was a Jewish woman who was incredibly beautiful and wise. Ancient biblical scholars claim that she was one of the top five most beautiful women of the Bible. She is marked by her courage to speak for her people, even though she hides her identity as a Jew from the king who was her husband for years. Next is our villain in the story, Haman. He's going to be appointed to a position that is similar to that of a prime minister, which makes him second only to the king. He is completely consumed with a desire to seek vengeance against the Jews. Why? He was an Amalekite. Who are the Amalekites? Well, in 1 Samuel 15.3, we learn a little bit about them. It says that the Lord commanded King Saul to destroy the Amalekites for their actions against Israel. So the Amalekites were the first nation to really rise up and attack Israel after the exodus from Egypt. In verse 3 it says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But King Saul, the king of the Israelites, did not obey God. In 1 Samuel fifteen eight through 9 it says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. As a result of Saul's disobedience, he lost the kingdom, and a seed of bitterness took root that led to Haman. Had he been obedient to God's commands fully, Haman would not have existed. Haman is a man that nearly perfectly describes a life lived contrary to that which God loves. In Proverbs six sixteen through 19, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. This section of scripture almost perfectly describes Haman's actions throughout the book of Esther. 
at the very center of our story is this division between the Jews and the Amalekites. As a descendant of the Amalekites, Haman's sole aim was to eliminate the Jewish people, God's people, in a great act of revenge. Does that sound like anyone else you can think of? This is just one of the examples in scripture where Satan is working to disrupt God's purposes and prevent the promised Messiah, Jesus, from coming into this world to save it. Christ's entrance into the world as a man predicated on the existence of the Jewish race. If Satan could eliminate the Jews, then the prophecy of a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, could not be fulfilled. But our God is greater than our enemy. We see his hand of sovereignty throughout the story without ever seeing his name written or spoken. The story of Esther takes place over a period of 10 to 12 years, starting around 483 BC in Susa, which is one of the capitals of Persia. And as you can see up here on our map, the red star is Susa, and then the red border all the way around is the entire area that was King Ahasuerus' empire, the Persian empire. As you can see, it covers a huge amount of territory at its peak. It included the upper Nile in Africa, all the way up through Ethiopia to India. On a modern map, that includes Albania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. As large as that territory was, our story opens with the king making plans to expand even more by attacking Greece to claim more land for himself. We also find ourselves right in the middle of a period that is known as the Restoration Period for the Israelites. The Jews had been exiled to Palestine and Babylon. They were finally given freedom from Cyrus to return to the Promised Land of Israel. There were three main returns of the Israelites, the first in 536 B.C., and then in 458 and 444 B.C. This first wave of people that returned to the Promised Land, they were Jews, was about 50,000 people. However, most of the Jews did not return to the Promised Land at that time. This is a very critical detail in our story, because in Deuteronomy 28, with the law, and then in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets, all command that the Jews return to the promised land. So those that decided to stay in Persia, their motives were probably not entirely selfless. Life in the Persian Empire was far more comfortable than life in the promised land. There was less pressure for them to follow all of the food laws that God had commanded them, and they experienced great wealth there. It was comfort and convenience versus obedience. And Esther was one of those Jews who chose comfort and convenience. It's important to note that in the text, it doesn't speak ex- explicitly to this point. We're reading through the, between the lines here. But there are multiple clues that would lead us there. Esther conceals her nationality as a Jew when she enters into the palace. That would have been remarkably difficult to actually follow the food laws and still live within the palace and it not be obvious that she was a Jew. She also married the king, which was explicitly forbidden for her as a Jew to marry this Persian man. 
again, it would be so hard for her to be in that kingdom to completely follow God's commandments and not reveal her identity as a Jew. As we continue to study Esther in the coming weeks, I would encourage you to think through some of her choices and ask yourself if she was choosing God's best for her life. Can any of you relate with that? Have you ever chosen comfort over a challenge? Have you made choices in your life that are contrary to God's best for you? I can certainly relate. As I think about Esther's life and I think about mine, there are so many similarities. Even though I grew up hearing the truth of God's word and I claimed him as my God, there have been seasons of my life that I completely lived to the contrary. In high school, I was involved in everything that our school had to offer. I was the captain of every sports team we had, the president of band and choir, National Honor Society. I led chapel with our worship band, and I led worship at my church. On the outside, I was the perfect girl to mimic. But on the inside, I was completely living to the opposite. And I was not following the Lord's plan and design for my life. It was far from God's best for me. I chose friends who, instead of pointing me to Christ and to truth, encouraged a lifestyle that would bring nothing but death. I found myself trapped in a lifestyle of drinking in a relationship that was verbally, physically, and sexually abusive. I did not fully grasp or trust the concept of God's sovereignty in my life. I had stopped acknowledging God in my life completely, and as a result, I couldn't recognize him or his actions. Which brings us back to the purpose of this great story. The book of Esther demonstrates God's providential care and his sovereignty for his people even when they were living in disobedience outside the promised land. It shows that God can and he does use ordinary people to accomplish his plan of salvation. Celebrating and displaying God's sovereignty in our lives is the primary purpose of the book of Esther. But it also introduces an important feast for the Jews. It's the Feast of Purim. It explains the origin of the feast and also prescribes its observance to future generations of Jews. Purim is still celebrated today by the Jews as a way to remember their deliverance in the time of Esther, but also to celebrate their survival despite thousands of years of persecution and hardship. God's sovereign hand has remained on his people throughout it all. I love this quote from Matthew Henry about the book of Esther. But though the name be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. So what is sovereignty? It simply means having supreme power or authority. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, it means that all things are under God's rule and his control, and that nothing happens without his direction or his permission. This means that God both possesses and exercises power over all of the works of his hands. This is an incredibly weighty concept for us to understand, and one that for all of us this side of heaven, we will never fully understand the details of God's sovereignty and what that really means in our lives. It is very difficult. 
but we can break it down into three different buckets to kind of consider to help us understand his sovereignty a little bit more in our lives. Number one, God is always at work, even when his people do not acknowledge his presence. Coming back to my story, by the end of my senior year of high school, I had had enough of the party lifestyle. I broke all ties with those friends and tried to start pursuing a relationship with the Lord. I was met with so many lies that I had been disqualified from any chance of being used by the Lord to bring about his purposes in this world. I was not convinced that God could use me or my story. With my limited perspective, it all felt like a waste. That even though God was at work in my life, I couldn't see it because my perspective was just too small. Our second point of God's sovereignty is that God acts on the basis of his perfect knowledge. His sovereignty works in harmony with our freedom. He does not coerce us to do his bidding like a slave master. After I graduated from high school, I moved to Dallas for college. During my first two years at Dallas Baptist University, I had the chance to serve leading worship and discipling high school students, something that completely terrified and intimidated me because I was generally with a group of senior girls on these Disciple Now weekends, being a freshman in college and you know, six months removed from my senior year and trying to speak truth into these girls' lives knowing that I had not been an example of what God wanted for their lives not very long before that. And the sweetness of getting to share my story with these girls and see the Lord move despite terrible decisions on my part. It was a wonderful two years of ministry. But shortly after that, by the time I got to my senior year of college, I had gone just like a dog to its vomit right back to the lifestyle that I had lived in my senior year of high school. I completely isolated myself from believers and anybody who could potentially hold me accountable or speak biblical truth into my life. I found myself living with a guy and feeling like a total hypocrite because I was one. I was operating out of my freedom and my choices were leading me right back to death. The Lord was not a slave master in my life, coercing me to his will. I was operating out of my freedom, even though it was not God's best for me. Our third point for God's sovereignty is that when we understand his sovereignty, it brings confidence and courage, knowing that he is in control and he knows best. I made the decision to end the relationship I was in, After a year and a half, however, I continued to say that I loved God and was still drinking deeply of all that the world had to offer. I knew that I could no longer have one foot in the world and one foot towards Jesus. I came to the porch, which is the young adults ministry at our Dallas campus, and I heard hard truth about the life that I had been living. But I also heard about the love of Christ, his ability to redeem my life, And I found biblical community with a group of single women who could point me back to truth and remind me of what God's word says about me and about him. For the first time in years, I was actually running after Christ. 
Shortly after coming to Watermark, um, I was asked to interview for an opening on staff. I was completely terrified. I had no idea how they got my name um, and just knew this is not going to end well. I was completely convinced that my choices had disqualified me from ever being able to be used by the Lord in ministry, much less vocational ministry. In the interview, I rambled out my story as quickly as I could say it, fully anticipating a, thanks for coming in, we'll let you know. Much to my surprise, I got the job. And that was the day that I fully realized for the first time the truth of Romans 8.28. And it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And 2 Corinthians 5.17, that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the last five years, I have found freedom in Christ as I've had the opportunity to share my story and to celebrate God's grace in my life with countless women. I trust him and I rely on him in a whole new way. Now that I recognize that his plans are perfect, I can confidently face the days ahead knowing that he is in control and he knows best. Just as God had a plan of rescue for his people from destruction in the book of Esther, God has a rescue plan for us, and his name is Jesus. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we'll see in the story of Esther, our God is a faithful redeemer. There is no such thing as too far gone with him. He is willing and able to cover all of our sin with the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's desire is for each one of us to come to a saving knowledge of him and his love for each one of us. For those of you who are believers, I want to extend a challenge to you. In John 16:33, Jesus makes a promise that we tend to forget when attack comes. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have been promised that there will be trouble and hardship this side of heaven. And yet, how many times when we're faced with hard and painful situations do we ask, Why is this happening to me? My husband Kyle and I have been trying to get pregnant for about a year and a half. I was not the girl who grew up wanting to be a mom. I had no desire whatsoever and felt like being married, that would just be something I would need to do for my husband to serve him. Until the Lord changed my heart and completely transformed my view of motherhood about two years ago. In the midst of an incredibly hard conversation with the Lord about our infertility a few weeks ago, ago, I told him in frustration, I just feel like this is never going to end. And then it hit me. Why are you surprised you're facing trouble? I promised you that this would happen. I told you it would come. In that moment, I was completely overwhelmed with peace as I remembered the Lord's promises for me. He told me that these things would happen, 
but he told me so that I would have peace, that I should take heart because he has overcome the world. This week after some testing, we learned that there are some physical issues in my body that will make it difficult to get pregnant. In the midst of that news on Monday, I was reminded of the promises that I have hidden in my heart from God's word for years now. God is perfect in all of his ways. He cares about the details of my life. He is for me, not against me. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, gracious, loving, and kind. He knit me together in my mother's womb, and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Our equipping director, Blake Holmes, says often that in times of trouble, your theology matters. Monday afternoon would have looked so different had I not hidden God's word away in my heart before receiving those test results. I would assume that Esther, despite some questionable behavior in her story, had a faith in God that had been established and developed over years before her rise to the position of the Queen of Persia. Her wisdom and her courage to raise her voice for those without a voice in the palace shows godly character that develops over time and with an active relationship in God. What are you doing to prepare for trouble? Because trouble is on its way. How are you getting ready to courageously stand when destruction is before you? As we wrap up our time tonight, I want to share a quote from Elizabeth Elliot that rings so true in the story of Esther and in our lives as well. She says, safety, as the cross shows, does not exclude suffering. Trust in God's strong arms means that even our suffering is under control. We are not doomed to meaninglessness. A loving purpose is behind it all. As we study over the next five weeks, consider God's sovereignty in this story and in yours. Remember to take God into account because he is always at work, even when you can't see it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the truth of your word, that you have promised us so many things that hold true, and that you have preserved your word over thousands of years so that we can know your character and we can know that you love us and have a plan for each one of our lives. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study the book of Esther, that you would reveal yourself to each one of us in new and profound ways. That you would help us to fully grasp what it means that you are sovereign over our lives. And to fully understand that above all, you love us. And that you sent your son to die for us because of that love. God, I thank you for each woman that is here in this room tonight. I thank you for the sacrifices that have been made to come and to get into your word. And Lord, I pray that you would just pour blessings upon each one of them. And I say all this in Christ's name. Amen. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit. um, And I'm going to just talk through what the structure of our study is going to look like over the next six weeks. Um, We will always start with our lecture time um, and go through a lesson before we dive into discussion. 
You'll have a table leader at each one of your tables that will have a couple of discussion questions for you to go through. Feel free to rotate around the tables every week. Nobody is assigned to a specific spot, so have fun. Get to know each other. Meet some new ladies. That's part of our purpose is that you would just be able to connect with more women here at the Plano campus and just develop friendships training grounds. For those of you that have kiddos in training ground, there's a couple of announcements for them. First is that we would ask that you pick them up at 8.30 sharp. So I will come up here and make an announcement that it's almost time, a couple minutes before 8.30. That way you can start wrapping up your conversation and go pick them up. Feel free to stay as long as you want in the building until 10 o'clock if you're able to do so. We'd love to have you hang out with us. Security will kick you out at 10, so just be prepared for that. Um, One more announcement with training ground is that if your kiddos have fever or vomiting, we ask that you wait until they're 24 hours fever-free before bringing them back up here just to keep our kiddos and our workers from getting sick. Last couple of things is you um, probably received a workbook. If you didn't, let us know, and we will make sure and get one of those for you. Um, We do recognize that it is... The Coffee Cup series is not necessarily a super deep name. Espresso with Esther kind of makes you giggle. Um, But this is a study that is so rich. It's written by a DTS professor, and I promise you that you're going to learn a ton about the book of Esther if you dive in with us and go through that. It is broken down to where you have a daily lesson to work through in that. And so my encouragement to each one of you is that you would do that work. It has the scripture in the same book. So for those of you that may work in a corporate environment that you can't necessarily have your Bible open or teachers in public schools, that it is all wrapped up in this one book for you. And so take that to work with you. Use it on your lunch breaks and just dive in and go deep. Do not feel pressured, however, if you don't finish the homework, that you can't come. Please come. Whether you do the work or not, we want you to be here. And you will learn even just if it's from the lecture time. So please come every week. We'd love to have you here.